0: All right, here we are um, on the New Books Network podcast. My name is uh, Bill Domnarski. I uh, do podcasts with authors who have written books either about law or about literature. And today we have uh, as the guest, William Ian Miller from the University of Michigan, who has written a terrific book called Outrageous Fortune with a wonderful subtitle of Gloomy Reflections on Luck and Life. Uh, Bill, good to see you.
1: It's nice to be here.
0: Um, Before we talk about the book specifically, why don't you give me the uh, CV version, if you could, of your education and teaching history?
1: Okay. I uh, grew up in Green Bay, Wisconsin, went to my state university at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Then I went to grad school and french intellectual history but hated graduate school so much and i blamed it on french intellectual history and i had a danforth fellowship and i went over to the english department and said can i get in and they said yes but on condition that you take some prelim courses one of them being old english anglo-saxon so i took that and i just like oh my god i never thought it or it was just a eye-opening experience I just the most amazing poetry most amazing stuff so an Icelander in the class said you think this stuff is good and he handed me the penguin translation of Niall's saga I went back to my hovel started reading it and I just thought oh my god what a sin that I didn't know that every kid doesn't know about this and I took old Norse the next semester. And then I ended up getting a job teaching that stuff, Medieval at Wesleyan in Middletown, Connecticut. The job market had already collapsed by then. That's 1975. And uh, I was lucky to get a a good old boy network kind of connection, got the job. But I just couldn't write. I had total writer's block. So I decided to go to law school at the same time I was teaching at Wesleyan. And in law school, I started to write about the, uh, the North Sagas. And I got a job Then after I quit at Wesleyan because I wasn't going to get tenure anyway, I uh, got a job at the University of Houston Law School. Those Texas guys just loved the idea of letting me teach about Hacken and Hewing, and um, and then I started to write. And uh, then I got asked to go up to the University of Michigan as a visitor, and I got a job there, uh, which was truly uh, uh, such a stroke of good fortune for me because they let me do whatever I wanted, and I think. Part of the motivation for the Outrageous Fortune book is that my luck of getting this job at Michigan was so great that I'm still waiting for the shoe to drop because you know what goes around comes around and I'm gonna have to pay for the good fortune.
0: We all believe that. When people ask you uh, who you are or what you do, it seems you have some options. You can say, Well, I'm an essayist. I'm a law professor. I'm a medievalist. What do you tend to say to people?
1: Well, you know, it's very awkward. I still, I still, I basically say I'm a medievalist.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Yeah. And, uh, but medieval people, when I give a, a talk at, let's say, among medievalists, I'll say, Oh, how did you get a job? The first question is always, How did you get a job in a law school? <laughs> That's
0: well, it is a good question.
1: <laughs> yeah, I said, you know what you have to do? You have to ask the people who
0: hired me. I mean, I have no clue to this day. All right. Before we talk about uh, Outrageous Fortune, you have a, a certain uh, gift when it comes to titles. Now, I know in your introduction you say that the title to Outrageous Fortune really isn't yours. It came from the suggestion. came from one of the editors at Oxford. But you have some other wonderful titles here. You have Faking It. A book with uh, Cambridge in 2003, The Mystery of Courage with Harvard in 2000. You have the wonderful title of The Anatomy of Disgust with Harvard back in 1997. You have a book called Humiliation. (laughs) You have a wonderful uh, (laughs) grasp of or a wonderful ability to draw people in with the title. Are all those books that I just listed similar to Outrageous Fortune in that the uh, it's a series of essays, if I understand these things correctly, um, under this general title, for instance, of Outrageous Fortune. Is that a good way of describing it? Well, that, that's Humiliation and Outrageous
1: Fortune are, are, are really collections of essays with roughly related connections. Uh, the other books really are consistent, full, uh, fully conceived books on, on the particular topic of the title so like faking and it's just about uh one look at all the anxieties about uh that you have in any kind of social interaction of are you doing okay you know are you doing okay is the person buying the act or do i have to go home and feel like i botched yet another handshake or whatever um the the they, they the courage book is just a, a systematic view of of all the kind of uh uh Varying views of courage, and uh, read tons of war memoirs for that book. But they no, the only two ones that are collections of essays are the humiliation and this one, uh, the uh, you know.
0: The, well, let me ask uh, you about losing it. In part because you, it's not even a subtitle. It's losing it, comma, in which an aging professor laments his shrinking brain, which he flatters himself formally did him noble service, colon, a plaint, tragic, comical, historical, vengeful, sometimes satirical, and thankful in six parts if his memory does yet serve. Now, that's an 18th century title if I've ever seen That's exactly
1: right. That's a 17th and 18th century title meant to be that, and the print on the front cover is of, of trying to capture that, typefaces of the 17th century uh, 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 you know pamphlets and stuff like that. Um, That was a a book induced um, by the anxieties of watching your brain rot uh, uh, as you get older. And I wrote it in my Beatle year when I I was 64 years old. And I just was hard, you know, I work in these dead languages, like Old English and uh, Old Norse. And you have a very keen indicator of how your brain is rotting because you all of a sudden can't understand something you're reading that you had read with perfect comprehension 10 years before or five years before so you start to see the rot take place and it just gets i i i kind of wrote the book as a bit of a magical enterprise like if i claim a little bit more rot than is actually taking place maybe the gods will take it easy on me oh no I'm now 76 and I can't even I barely can remember I I mean I can't remember the names of the people who live next door. I mean it's really awful what happens. You know we outlive our we outlive our brains nowadays because our
0: bodies keep going. Well, certainly if uh if your last <laughs> book is any indication of your mental uh, uh, acuity, you're, you're doing pretty well. Outrageous Fortune is a, a very learned book. So your memory has served you pretty well to be able to produce that, produce that kind of book. But again, before I get to that book, I need to ask you about some others. So losing it is about growing older and worrying about your ability to uh, uh, take in the world. What about some of the others, like uh, the one I want oh, to... I'm sorry. It's the one that uh, echoes the anatomy of uh, melancholy, the anatomy of disgust. of disgust.
1: Tell me about that book. Actually, that's the one book of mine that had uh, some popular success. Minor pop. I mean, minor popular success. I, we're talking academic numbers, but it did quite well for an academic book. Um, it's really about uh, the, the emotion, or uh, or uh, and the. Uh, how complexly discussed our disgust mechanisms are uh, uh, constituted. And um, it, it partly is a anti-spiritual autobiography of my own horror at human embodiment. So um, it's kind of droll, meant to be droll and down in the dumps about embodiment. But um, I, it's kind of uh, written in a, with a vaguely uh, satirical polemic against the whole kind of sexualization of the universe in which that is considered the uh, end-all and be-all of human existence. And I kind of look at human bodies with such revulsion that I um, uh, kind of, let's say, uh, was less than celebratory about human embodiment.
0: Well, I want to give you uh, what I would think is one of the great compliments you could get, which is, it's the kind of book that Montaigne could have written, right? Yeah, yeah. You know what? I, somebody said that in a review of me, that, oh. that I can be a
1: Montaigne. And I just thought, like, hey, I mean, what a joke, for one thing. But, hey, why aren't I selling more books? Well,
0: that might be why. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, I've read him pretty uh, carefully over the years, and I've always been interested in his choice of, of uh, subjects or topics how do you go about choosing what you're going to write about because you, you know, have that I, in common with him you have this offbeat approach to life
1: yeah, absolutely. by the way just uh just a, let me ah about maintain if anybody's listening just read it, it it is truly one of the most Amazing triumphs of the human spirit. It is just simply amazing. But anyway, how do you, how do I go? I I don't know. They it comes I, I, after I write a book. I'm always go- sink into total depression because I think I'm emptied out <laughs> and I have nothing left. That's it. I'm done. I'm finished. And then I I languish for you know months or even a year. And then all of a sudden an idea will come to me. Um, just out of the blue, you know, some little kind of little bird things or something like that, and um, and and then I, the next book happens, and then I go through the same misery again about wondering the, this time I really am done because I'm afraid that my brain won't do. I can't learn enough new stuff to write about it. So, but my colleagues, I say, Miller, you say that every time. And then there's three years later, there's another book. But this time it's true. I'm done. I'm finished.
0: All right. Your prose style resembles Montaigne in the sense that you want a certain intimacy with your reader. Yeah. It's obviously it. very deliberate on your part. Why did you take that approach? I,
1: I think that's just the way I write. It's not like I consciously sat down to make a decision. It's like how I would normally, I always feel like the, the important thing an academic does is still teach. And I kind of always want my books to grab the reader so that they'll want to go read some more and, and, and to, to excite them in the way you try and excite students in a classroom. And so maybe that's, but even then, my mother used to say, my mother, who's about to turn 100 in two months. Holy (laughs) cow. Yeah, she would say, like, I said, Mom, did you read that last book? She says, yes. But she says, why do you have to make so many goddamn distinctions? (laughs) (laughs) And I think I'm writing
0: for a general audience. She said, yeah, general audience, right. (laughs) Is it fair to say that Montaigne was an influence on you? Um, I wouldn't even think
1: that. I mean, it's, it's just he's so his his essays are such wonderful kind of uh, to imitate it. I wasn't consciously doing it. But how could you not be influenced by a book that grabs you so much? And if you've read like four or five, six, you read reread every 10 years or something like that. But all you know right. probably the biggest influence on my writing is are the Icelandic sagas actually my my actual domain where I have some real competence I mean that my specialty are the Icelandic sagas so it's their prose style that I try in in a way
0: crap um, all right well can you in a couple of minutes educate me about those sagas because I know almost nothing about them
1: well they're just they're you couldn't imagine they exist unless you read them they are Written probably uh, in the 12th and 13th, mostly 13th century Iceland, and they uh, look like they were written yesterday. There's nothing very medieval about them. They're just tough-minded, witty, very witty, tough-minded, stripped-down prose. And it's every conversation hovers on the edge of insult. So you're always kind of needling the guy you're talking to. And the remarkable thing is, is that the women are major actors in it too, without there being any political agenda to make them uh, uh, actors. So you don't feel it's being forced upon you. What you just see are powerful human beings dealing with each other in a highly competitive, contentious way. And it's just, they're too
0: good. They're beyond belief good. Just beyond belief good. Well, how did that literary tradition continue or did it? Did it just stop? No, well, it didn't. It just stopped. It,
1: they they wrote in this wonderful, uh, I, I, it's hard for um modern prose didn't catch up with where Old Norse prose was in, in English or in French until this, uh, it, in the case of Montaigne the late 16th century. In the case of English prose, probably not until the 18th, um, I, I, even though there's great triumphs of it along the way. Um, the, uh the, they, it went out of fashion. What came in were French romances and they got all into, they started writing in that style. Uh, they they gave up on the native style. So um,
0: what century yeah. did it stop, the
1: uh, uh It's it really starts, starts stopping in the 14th century.
0: Oh my gosh. Yeah. All right, so let's now turn to uh, Outrageous Fortune's gloomy reflections on luck in life. How did that come to you? Oh,
1: because I'm just a by-wrote uh, pessimist. I've always been one my whole life. And, 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 and that's with a life that's been um, very good. I mean, I, I, it, it would be sick of me to complain about anything that's happened in my life. I've, I've led, a, led a charmed life. But that's precisely the problem. I expect that that is gonna to have to be paid back. And we, I, I would ask my students, uh, uh, I said, what makes you a little more anxious or nervous? A run a good luck or a run of bad luck? And they all get a nervous look, the run a good luck. Your press, because at some point you get the anxiety of you're pressing your luck. And you all know that your luck is in a fixed supply and you're using it up. Whereas bad luck, yeah, I mean, bad luck, big deal. I mean, that's just like shit happens, right?
0: Well, what we happens if you, you ask that question of, uh, say, 10 people who have uh, outrageously high self-esteem, but they say the same thing? Oh well okay now that's a very good question because um one of the veiled
1: often not veiled polemics is certainly an uh, open polemic in the losing it book is uh my hostility and utter contempt for the cup is ha- uh, is uh, half full uh the, the insipid american optimism um of looking on the bright side or of self movement. So no matter how crummy you are, you're supposed to think well of yourself. Oh, come on, let's get real. Um, any kind of... I, I just... I, I loathe the whole... Life. So in this book, there is a little thing. It, it, among the uh, the Scandinavians, because of what I do with Old Norse, I, I, I occasionally have to visit in their in their countries, their ideal countries. So in Denmark, there's this uh, rule from... from uh, the word comes from a novel that was written in uh, 1930. Uh, the law of Yante. And the law of Yante is no one shall ever exceed in abilities anybody else. So it's a, a rough, you know, it's like Kurt Vonnegut's uh, uh, Handicapper General. Everybody's got to stay down so that nobody excels. And so you go through this elaborate false. Modesty systems of false modesty, to make to to never let yourself look like you're advancing above your your uh, your your compatriots or whatever. I contrast that with the American system of equality, which is everybody on my one of my kids' soccer teams about 15 years or 20 years ago uh, won the MVP award. I mean, is anything more risible than that? <laughs>
0: but- you understand, don't okay. you? You understand, Never... don't you, uh, Bill? That you sound like a Seinfeld character. In fact, there's an episode in which George is giving—he's getting some some uh, grief from something—and he says, "Do you think God's going to let me be happy?" Of course, but of course, Ed, but
1: Seinfeld is a Jew, and I'm a Jew too. Even though my name is William Ian Miller and okay. come from Green Bay, Wisconsin. How did that happen? And not even Jewish self-hatred. Right. It's that My parents, the name was Miller. I was named after my grandfather who was dead, who was Vel, you know, yeah, Bill, I mean Mel, Miller. And my dad he, he goes off to war in the World War II and the captain on his ship was Ian McPherson and they needed an eye for not to, so you don't reproduce the exact name like Christians do. Like, you know, so you have William, I, Miller, his was Isidore, actually for the Hebrew Yitzhak Isaac, right? So they've just stuck in Ian in there for because it started with an I, but they pronounced Ian. I mean, they didn't even know. But so uh, I could have I easily got into one of the Ivy League schools with the Jewish quotas because I would have looked like a high goy, <laughs> you know? So it's like um, unless they ask for a profile picture. Well, you know, it's like, uh, <laughs> but so anyway, the Seinfeld thing is I'm a yid, So I think uh, part of that, uh, you know, uh, down in the dumps, if any Jew is ever optimistic, they have totally assimilated. How can a Jew ever be optimist? You always expect that you're going to end up going up the chimney.
0: At least I do. Now, this view of, of, of life, is it something you've always had, or did it? I think at a had certain it. time in your life. No, my mom
1: says I was always this like little Well, I mean, I, I just was always looking on the dark side. Or as I say in, the, in, the, in this little outrageous book in the intro, intro, I guess, my dad had this capacity for looking at fair weather cumulus clouds and seeing them as like marching troops in a Nuremberg rally. I mean, <laughs>
0: it's just like, All right. Well, let me ask you this. How do you square that, that this uh, view that life is a dismal the uh, Hobbesian view of life? How do you square that with your wicked sense of humor? You are a very funny man. How do you square those things? Well, I mean, what are you going to do? You got to. Laugh. <laughs> I mean, there's there's nothing to do but just shrug your shoulders
1: and like laugh. Although at some point uh, the joke's on you. I mean, you're laughing, but the joke, of course, is on you. But you know that. I mean, I can. Can you? get serious about this, the whole self-esteem stuff. I mean, do you know those little kids that a colleague's kids, uh, she told me this story. I, I, She said, you know, my kids came home from school. Or, my kid came home from school. She's in second grade. She, I, she says, so how are you doing, Emma? And Emma says, well, I don't know how I'm doing. The teacher says everything I do is just wonderful and brilliant, but she says that to everybody.
0: <laughs> oh. We used to live in uh, Edina, Minnesota, which is a very swank town, very swank. And in the grammar schools, the kids would be taught a song, the I'm So Special song.
1: Oh, I know. Isn't that <laughs> My kids would come home and actually sing it to me to irritate me. You know, just like...
0: <laughs> now, you would have someone there outside the circle saying, But why? But why? But why? Oh, but, but, you know, remember that
1: uh, I don't know that they would allow it in today's birthday parties. Remember how miserable you were when you went to a kid's birthday party because he got all these presents mm-hmm. and you saw what your mom had bought this kid and you wanted it and you just suffered through the this well nowadays the mothers have to give presents to all the other little kids. Come oh, really? oh. How can you raise a, a nation of, 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 I mean, look what's happening in the country. That's the death of the country right there. So, um, I but remember the game you used to play when we were little kids? Musical chairs at mm-hmm. those parties. Is there ever a more angst-producing game than musical chairs?
0: I will be an outsider. Yeah. And only
1: one person gets it at the end, and everybody else is a loser. And... Boy, but I think that was a healthier kind of way of seeing the world. Musical chairs, that's a look uh, at, at reality.
0: Well, it certainly would prepare you uh, better for being a lawyer, that's for sure. Yeah. Or just All right, so it. let's go. I want to be give the uh, the audience a uh, um, a fuller taste of at least one little essay that you have in uh, Outrageous Fortune. I'm a big Shakespeare fan. I've... Uh, yeah. Read about him a fair amount. Um, tell me about Vile Jelly. That's chapter four. Well, by the way, jelly. when I was reading your uh, book, Brian Vickers, one of the great Shakespeare scholars, had a letter to the editor on that very topic of vile jelly. Oh, no kidding. Oh, really? Tell me about that little essay. Well, the greatest thing, I, I
1: mean, how many people will dispute that the greatest thing ever written is King Lear? I mean, maybe you put Hamlet there, but uh, King Lear. So uh, one of the most fine chilling scenes in all world literature is where Gloucester's eyes are gouged out uh, or, uh, and, and it's an out vile jelly. That vile jelly is the word that um, uh, Cornwall uses the gouger uses for uh, the eye. And of course, that's just my view of the discuss- how perfect to capture horror of human embodiment where you take the eye which is always we feel the most beautiful thing that can be that that makes somebody beautiful if they're going to be beautiful are their eyes and of course but they have to be in one's head and if they're put out of one's head they become an object of horror and if they're squished and poked you find out they're made of jelly Ooze and goo, and that's the most disgusting substance there is, like snail ooze. And so Shakespeare takes the most, the thing that unites us to the angels in our souls, our eyes, and takes them and turns them into vile jelly. And so I vi- revisit the uh, the my my uh, uh, the disgust book issues in that chapter, uh, via kind of that image um, of. Uh, Oh, it's so appalling. I mean, you know, go smell thy way to Dover.
0: Oh, yeah. It is a great play. Uh, I, I don't know that I agree with you that it's the, uh, the greatest of his plays. I, I'm a traditionalist. I go with Hamlet all the time. Though I think in King Lear, he has the most tragic line of all. He has Gloucester say, I stumbled when I saw, which I yeah. think is just marvelous. Oh I, know. oh, I just got
1: chills when you said
0: that. I got, <laughs> I absolutely, got, I, I, got, I got chills. It's a great, great line. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So tell me, when you sat down to write that essay, how much of Shakespeare did you know and how much did you have to learn to feel competent to write that essay?
1: Uh, I think I've uh, internalized uh, it, to the tragedies, um, the Shakespearean tragedies, especially Hamlet and Lear. To such an extent that I think, like I, I'm always not even aware of how many times I, in a sentence, I'm submerging a quote uh, to them. I, um, they, they. It, is it possible to even? Is it possible at least when we went to school to grow up without Hamlet, uh, Hamlet in your head and constituting who you are, uh, in a in a way? I, I just. Uh, um, Uh, yeah, it's just there.
0: But you had to go back and make sure that you're getting it right. How did you do that? Oh, you know what? So I
1: teach in a law school. What do I teach? I teach a seminar called Faking It. What's one of the books I assign? Hamlet. So I teach. But here's the horror. I ask. These are smart kids, right? They went to all the right schools. These are University of Michigan uh, uh, law students. How many of you have I said now be honest, fess up. How many of you have read Hamlet? And it, the horror will be that two thirds have not, and I will be the first occasion for them reading it. Really? In law school, yes. But well, was it that they read another uh, the Shakespeare play the instead? Of, huh? That's a sign of the end of all things. That that isn't mandatorily rammed down your throat. At, uh, in high school, maybe where you're too young to appreciate it, but at least in college, no matter what you take, you should have to read Hamlet.
0: Well, in, in high school, I often read Romeo and Juliet. Uh, my daughter, my older daughter, went to the University of Minnesota, and she read Macbeth in uh, yeah, her general English class. So I'm not sure that Hamlet's the one they always assign, but certainly one of the top two or three. Um, did you see the 1996 movie that Kenneth Branham made? Yes. Isn't that I the just, most dazzling thing that's ever been put on I'll film? now we'll have an argument. We're finally okay. going
1: to disagree. I thought, I think Branagh so overacts that I, I he drives me up a wall. <laughs> I, I thought he was like overacting the, the part. And... Uh, Now it's clear. You often get people who are doing Shakespeare who clearly you can see don't understand what they're saying. He understands what he's saying, but he's like letting you know he understands what he's saying. I mean, he's like a little, uh, little too proud for my for my taste. Is that so? Now I this is going to be for a Jew to say this is really going to be something. I thought Mel Gibson was better as Hamlet than Branagh. Whoa. I see the and lowbrow, flowing lowbrow, in. Low brow, I am. But I, that's what you get when you come from Green Bay, Wisconsin.
0: <laughs> so, what did they teach you in high school in Green Bay when it came to oh, literature?
1: We had, we had um, Julius Caesar in our sophomore year, we had Hamlet in our junior year, and we had Macbeth in our senior year. And I can't believe that they didn't invert that so that Macbeth would be in the junior and Hamlet in the senior because Hamlet's just too hard for kids that age to understand. But it knocked—it sure knocked me off my feet. I was a little science nerd, and uh, boy, did those plays knock me off my feet! And I was so pleased with myself that I could understand big hunks of it. You know that that if you concentrated, you could understand. And I mean, oh, and you—you you know, just think of the world in which Shakespeare was popular all the through all the class levels in that world. And that they could understand and love their language to that extent that even your little guy in the you know in the pit would
0: understand the it would understand and not and love the language, love it. Well, who do you like? Who's written about Shakespeare? Which critics of Shakespeare do you read? Oh, I'm, I'm
1: a big fan of the 19th century critics, so I love uh, I love uh, I. I Hazlitt on Shakespeare, and I love A.C. Bradley. I just think A.C. Bradley is just wonderful. So the Victorian critics like Bradley were just wonderful. Mm -hmm. Whereas now, anything post that nowadays you get into that uh, absolutely awful hatred of the language. Postmodernist kind of crap, and I, I just have a hard time with
0: that. Well, there are still some uh, traditionalists. This fellow Jonathan Bate, I think, is one of the leading guys. Oh, yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, Shakespeare critics. I don't want to say guys. Well, uh,
1: it, it, I think one of the truly great critics, in, in but he's more of a Milton critic, uh, is, was Christopher Ricks.
0: Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, there's I mean, a wonderful so thing on YouTube, about two hours, where someone interviews him about his life and education in writing, oh, and it's wonderful. I mean, he's out of sight. Psych- that, that's somebody who opens up,
1: no matter how much you think you know a text, he will still teach you a ton
0: about it. Now, why he wrote a book about uh, Bob Dylan, I'll never know. All right, so you have another essay I wanted to ask you about, essay uh, for Chapter 3 called Competition. Tell me about that. Well, you know, this is part of my.
1: Uh, that's where I put the little uh, 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 reference to musical chairs in it. Is that I always find it impossible not to rank people, or you rank yourself, you rank your own performances, so that there's this kind of inbuilt competitiveness in just trying to do well trying to be sociable. You kind of say, oh, I really was rude that time. And I just, so you like rank people and yourself according to how good you are at certain social functions, how certain uh, good you are at certain tasks. And there, this runs afoul of a certain cr- deep Christian view of being humble that we're not to be competitive. And of course, it's deeply hostile to the American self-esteem, non-competitive universe where everybody gets the MVP. I just think that as soon as you do that, you introduce a competition for who's going to be the least competitive. (laughs) There's no escaping it because you will reward and praise the person who is not being competitive, who gives way to the other. So I have, I I deal with in that chapter, uh, a thing that medievalists are very, very much aware of, uh, which were holiness contests, where saints basically are competing with each other for who can be the most humble. And of course, they're highly arrogant in this regard, because listen, I whipped myself 50 50 times and drew blood. And not only that, I didn't eat, but I ate crap and ooze and rotten food and sat on a flagpole in the freezing cold. Now match that. And nobody could match, although they tried actually, was St. Catherine of Siena, who said who who was taking care of a sick nun who had breast cancer and the cancer the the, the breast was all infected and the cancer broke open and 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 uh, Catherine vomited from the odor and the how disgusting it was. And she was so angry with herself for not being able to, that her flesh was so weak that she made a soup out of the pus and fluids and drank it and said, I never drank a, a a drink so sweet. And that was like, she won the contest for mortifying the flesh. And so she's all like, match that, you people who've just given up sex or given up wealth and riches, match it. So she set up a whole, um uh, a kind of competition or a fad in pus drinking saints in the 14th and 15th centuries.
0: Sounds I mean, like a Monty Python a, sketch. It,
1: well, so competition in pus drinking for Christ's sake. I don't know oh, if you sorry. heard what I
0: just said. It sounds like a Monty Python sketch almost. Well, you can't make
1: it up. The Monty Python skits are often uh, a, a couple of those guys were
0: medievalists.
1: Yes, Terry Jones was one. The yeah,
0: stuff. yeah, yeah. They just took the stuff right out of the, their texts. I think yeah. we, we, don't they have a movie that's said in medieval times? Uh, Life, no, not the Life of Brian. No, Life O'Brien is uh, my
1: daughter who No was, their first movie. Yeah, it was uh, uh, the uh, King Arthur Camelot yeah. or whatever. But, uh, the um, my daughter in, in college had a uh, took a course in biblical history, the the Bible and their teacher said that if you want uh, any depiction of what Jerusalem about the year zero had to look like. Um, it, the, the life of Brian is the most accurate kind of view of that, of of, that, of just the, the kind of boisterous mayhem of all the different positions uh, regarding the issues of the faith and whatnot. Uh, so it's life of Brian is just like historically fairly accurate. Oh, getting they're
0: the feel they're about very, it smart deal. Huh? very smart guys. Very smart. All right. I want to, uh, since I can ask people questions that they usually don't um, shirk, they want to answer. Uh, tell me about your working library in your house. When you sit down to write, you're surrounded by what kind of books? Uh, I... I
1: have uh, almost a duplicate set of certain books in my study where I'm in up in my attic here at home and in my office at school. They're mostly my medieval books. Uh, they're mostly uh, uh, all my old Norse books. And, um, and then they'll just be uh, certain philosophical books, but mostly just a lot of medieval literature sitting in both places.
0: All right. I, I forgot to... Uh bring up when you were talking about competition phenomenon that uh, about law professors, how they're obsessed with citation competitions. Tell me about that. How do you feel about your profession being so interested in how often they're cited when they write their law review articles? Oh yeah. well, now because
1: of the internet, I mean, there have you, you get your citation list of how often you've been cited. Now I wasn't part of that game because I didn't write law review articles, so um, or for lawyers or anything like that. But you know that now it's not a, There's the there's books called citation classics or or, or articles called citation classics because he got cited so many times, and not of course the. The, the piece de resistance, where I can pretentiously try and say it in the, the French accent, is if you get cited in the Supreme Court opinion. Mm-hmm. So, my colleagues who've been uh, cited in the Supreme Court opinion kind of strut around just a little taller than their other colleagues, looking down at them, you know, looking a little down at them for this.
0: Well, let me then ask you also.
1: The competition okay. is also for Amazon rankings, for oh, we're on the good. bestseller list. And I, I, it's kind of funny to call something a bestseller list because Outrageous Fortune is probably 4,857,000th on the bestseller list. The book had the great misfortune, that's almost like it asked for it, of coming out the week of the insurrection. So it just
0: was stillborn.
1: The poor little book, my poor little ass, (laughs) stillborn.
0: Let me ask you another question about uh, your your uh, profession as a as a uh, law professor. Um, Is 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 law an academic uh, pursuit, or is it a uh, kind of a um, almost a trade school law schools?
1: Yeah, it's it's that that is a constant
0: dispute
1: that. That has been probably since, uh, at least since I was hired when they hired somebody to do Icelandic blood feuds, you know, I mean, they just think, what the hell is this? I mean, uh, there's those uh, who are the practitioner types who think we should just be a trade school. And then there are those who think it's, the law is its own actual substantive specialty with its own purely intellectual issues. And they should be dealt with, with uh, like a philosopher would deal with ph- philosophical questions, uh, that legal question. And it's a dispute that still goes on. It was rife in the years I was hired. Um, it, it still continues. Um uh it's not clear i mean people who would say that uh probably still the best way to actually become a lawyer would probably be the old apprentice system where you just are hired on and you just work around the office and are given assignments um uh law school is uh, is probably not the best way to train lawyers but um I, I wouldn't want to see it go away. Mainly, I benefited by it existing. But I just think it's three years to see bigger pictures that you might never see again until way later on in your career as a lawyer. Well, a couple of yeah, things. There to be
0: said for it. A couple of things. Uh, uh, Richard Posner used to argue all the time that it should be two years, not three years. What do you think of that?
1: There is a problem with the third year, the students are anxious to get out and and paying back their tuition debts. Uh, They're mostly bored. Uh, Actually, once you've learned uh, the standard moves in a a kind of subject area in law, it does get repetitive. They're not learning a lot of new stuff, except substantive stuff that they could learn just as well by reading a book. it's probably for pure, if you're looking for pure practical uses, yes, two years is enough. But if you're looking for a larger kind of experience, I think three years is not a bad idea. And of course, there is like what we, Irk Posner is the third year is there just to keep the prices up in the market. It keeps, <laughs> uh, you know, it takes people out of the out of the system, competitors out of the system for one more year.
0: And what do we make of uh, law reviews where the editors and deciding what they want to publish are really affecting the careers of law professors? How is it that someone who knows almost nothing about law is deciding the fates of law professors?
1: Yeah, you know, this is uh, uh, why, um, just so that most of your listeners will know this, law reviews are edited and run by students. So the people who choose which uh, articles to publish um, and select are students who don't know m- all that much. And uh, yet, and uh, and it, this is drives people in other disciplines to have contempt for legal scholarship. So instead of peer reviews, where people who know something are reviewing the articles and passing judgment on it, you're just like uh, playing to students. And who will be overly impressed if you came from this institution as opposed to that institution? Yeah, there's a problem there, but I'm not sure. Will, what, the real cost that I've noticed in, uh, in, of, of having student editors is the law review articles are often three times longer than they need to be. Um, and it's because you have to walk the, the student editors through the entire educational process to see what little value-added point you're making is. So law review articles would be, it would, if they were peer-reviewed, would probably be the length of articles in anthropology and history and English, which would be like 25 pages rather than 70 pages.
0: Now, is it true that, and uh, well, this is what I've heard, is that uh, law review articles in a major uh, law review are honored more than, or valued more than, say, uh, a book uh, published by Oxford or Cambridge?
1: Uh, That might very, uh, uh, yes, your your style, um, uh, uh, old type of uh, legal scholarship, if you got an article in the Yale Law Journal or the Harvard Law Review, uh, they didn't care what it said. I mean, it could be a piece of crap. And that was status, man. That was that. That was the gift from the gods. And yes, it weighed much more than a book.
0: Strikes me as a pretty sad
1: commentary. I have it? to say, I have to say, for my colleagues over the years, um, I've had very good colleagues. Uh, they actually read and evaluated the work of of, of their uh, people coming up for tenure and so on and so
0: forth, uh, and made their own judgments.
1: But There. Are All
0: right. I uh, I want to uh, move on to what I will call the final question, which is: so you teach, you read, you write. What gives you the most satisfaction? You know, it's funny. uh, Writing, I think, does.
1: If it's going well, it also can be the the source of the most uh, depressing kind of, you know, glumness you can imagine. But. Now, I sat in on a last term during these awful COVID years, I retired two years ago, but I sat in on a colleague's, uh, a a visitor who teaches a legal history course in um, medieval uh, English uh, common law. And I just sat in on it. And boy, did I miss teaching from sitting there with the energy in the classroom with these smart kids. And I just thought, oh my, I think I really miss teaching more than mm-hmm. anything else. It's getting a kid, first of all, you learn from the students because they'll they'll just their fresh, smart eyes on stuff you've grown too used to. And they will just make eye-opening intelligent observations here and there that really teaches something. So it's just not a one-way street of you getting milked dry. You're getting a lot back. And I think. When push comes to shove, you might think that the best service you ever provided were not your books, but turning a kid on to some good stuff and learning from those kids too.
0: Oh, I'm not sure I'm going to buy that because when you look at your bookshelf the same way I look at mine and see my I have five books, you have a lot more. um, I'm really proud of those books. You must be really proud of yours. Well, you know what the 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 thing with
1: it it's like. Uh, the law school, uh, standard law school publication is an article. And I just uh, was talking to a colleague the, the, to, the, yesterday. I said, you know, he said, should I write a book? I just feel like the article is my is just like proper for me. I said, but look at your off prints. Do they give you the same feeling of accomplishment as actually seeing a real magical book on the shelf? I mean, there's something still sacred about a book. And um, she goes, that's why I'm going to write a book. <laughs> so, yeah, you do feel proud of them. Yes, you do. If, if in fact, oh, oh no, let, let, me, let me say, there's two reactions, bipolar reactions you have if you are actually dare to go back and reread something you wrote. One is the overly self-congratulatory you, oh, Miller, man, man, yeah, you're like, Montaigne. oh, man, that's what that guy called you, oh, boy, oh, why aren't you more pop, why aren't you more famous, oh, wow, and then I get a miserable thought, like, but you couldn't do that now, could you, (laughs) and then the other reaction you have looking at something is, oh, God, how stupid. I, I mean, I just didn't know enough to write this then. I should have waited. I know now I know what I needed to know to write that. Thank God nobody read it. <laughs> <laughs> so you get, you get the two bipolar reactions. All
0: right. Well, I said it was my last question, but I actually know. have another one. Uh, what? Tell me about your dedication. Remember, you have Donald Kohler. Is that the way you pronounce it? Yeah, that's my Tell part. me about the dedication.
1: Uh, my wife's uh, father was the sweetest, most wonderful man. He was a high school teacher and uh, and he died and I just thought I'd dedicate it to him because he was just a, a real, I mean, you know, the I, I am a miserable, pessimistic type who thinks that the amount of human evil in the world is just uh, beyond comprehension and here was a good man who got the kids turned on to English literature in a small town in the middle of nowhere in western New York state. And I just I wanted to, you know, give him my respects.
0: What did your wife think of that?
1: I don't really, I mean, I think she uh, was. Yeah, of course. You know, I mean, <laughs>
0: All right. Well, um, uh, Bill, you've been delightful to talk to. You really have. I've learned a lot. I'm going to now turn to some Icelandic sagas and see what I can make of them. Maybe I'll give you some emails asking uh, for some guidance. But you've been terrific talking about your books, about your process, about your interests. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, I know I'm better off for having listened to you. So we'll call that a day. And uh, again, thank you very much for doing this. Thank you, Bill. Thank you very much. Thank you.